Good morning to all my wonderful brothers and sisters at Osterville Baptist Church, as well as others who may be joining us. I cannot begin to express to you how much Muriel and I miss seeing you. We have enjoyed fellowshipping in the Spirit of God with you through the online service, as well, so well put together by Pastor Rob and Pastor Kimo uh, and the staff. And uh, that's a lot of hard work. Uh, to be putting all that together and doing such a great job. I want to thank on behalf of the congregation, I'm sure too, Pastor Rob, for those daily five-minute uh, fireside chats. They have been so heartwarming and so very uh, encouraging as well. And I don't know about the rest of you, but when I see Pastor Rob speak, I can see and feel the ache in his heart and uh, the sorrow in his eyes because a shepherd wants to be personally with the sheep. And so it's very difficult for everyone uh, in this time of separation. Muriel and I are praying for you and for the staff and for our wonderful elders and deacons and congregation every day. While it's wonderful to watch the videos, we really miss seeing each of you in person. I was reminded about 40, 42 years ago uh, when our younger daughter was just a, a little girl and uh, she was tucked in bed and it was night and then it was dark and she said from the bedroom down the hallway, she says, Daddy, I'm scared. And I gave the typical spiritual answer that dads do. And I said, well, don't be scared, hon. There's nothing to be scared about. The Lord is with you. And there was a little bit of a pause, and then she said, but Daddy, I want somebody with a face. And I guess that's the way most of us are. We want somebody with a face, and we miss your faces. It's been great in Orlando in January, February, and now Hilton Head Island in March and April uh, to see people who have, were able to visit at that time down in Orlando uh, here in Hilton Head as well, and we're especially enjoying the wonderful fellowship with Stu and Jonna Hickman, uh, who also attend Grace Community Church, where Miro and I worship when the doors uh, are open. This time of being confined in a small space can be rather stressful, and we uh, all know that to be true, and especially those of you who have little children uh, at home. Again, Mary Jo, the daughter I mentioned earlier, and her husband, Rob LaRocco, now have three boys ages 4, 8, and 12. And they live in a very small home down in outside of Providence, Rhode Island. So a few days ago, I got this picture uh, that's on the screen of our youngest grandson, Tazio. Tazio is age 4. His mom said to him, Why are you hiding under the blanket, Taz? Taz responded, because I needed some time alone. I guess we all kind of feel that way, being in a small space with a lot of people. The day before, by the way, Taz said to his mom, he said, the trouble in this household is you're the parent and I'm not. You know, every so often those in-laws genes come through in your grandsons. But anyway, uh, these days of being somewhat isolated have their challenges. Now this morning, I want to direct our hearts to Acts chapter 12, where we see the Apostle Peter in a, a possible situation, locked behind prison bars with heavy security. I've entitled the message, More Powerful Than Prison Bars. 
Whenever we go through hard times and difficult situations, the tendency is to focus on the situation, and that always will bring discouragement. We tend to live in the earthly dimension because we're in the flesh. And we view things from the outward appearance. But God transcends that earthly dimension. And he is at work in and through these difficult times. And wants our focus on him. So we see beyond that which is physical. To what God is doing in our hearts and lives spiritually. We get very impatient. But God is never in a hurry. So let's look at Acts chapter 12. And focus all our thoughts on our great omnipotent and sovereign God who is absolutely in control. I'm going to read verses 1 to 5. It'll be on the screen in front of you. And we'll see that the persecution of the church is increasing. Verse 1 of chapter 12 of Acts. Now about the time Herod the king stretched out his hand to harass some from the church, then he killed James, the brother of John, with the sword. And because he saw that it pleased the Jews, he proceeded further to seize uh, Peter also. Now it was during the days of unleavened bread, so when he had arrested him, he put him in prison. And he delivered him to four squads of soldiers to keep him, intending to bring him before the people after Passover. Now as we look first of all at the persecution of the church, there are three things that we can see. First of all, we see the depravity of Herod, the depravity of Herod. In a sense, this whole chapter is about God and Herod. Chapter 12 begins and ends with Herod. In verse 1, about that time, Herod the king. Verse 20, now Herod was angry. And so it's like a sandwich with two pieces of bread at the beginning and at the end. But we ask the question, who is Herod? That was be like saying in the days of a president. We say, well, what president? This is Herod Agrippa I. Probably doesn't mean a lot to some of you. But he's the grandson of Herod the Great, who was in power at the time Jesus was born in Bethlehem. He heard that the king of the Jews had been born, and he was threatened by the news. So he had all the children and babies two years and under slaughtered. Imagine those moms who had the baby ripped from their, uh, from their uh, arms and then thrust dead with a sword or a spear or whatever slaughter took place. Talk about depravity. Herod the great son was none other than Herod uh, Aristobulus, and uh, he had a son named Herod Agrippa I, who's in our text today. By the way, Herod the Great was so threatened by his own son Aristobulus that he had him slaughtered as well. We have an expression, we use it often in America, like father, like son. But in this case, it's like grandfather, like grandson. Agrippa was driven by his pride and his power. And he wanted to please his Jewish subjects while maintaining favor with Rome. Pride was the dominant trait, while pleasing the Jews was just political expediency, a means to an end. So the chapter begins with the display of his depravity and killing James the Apostle. And then the chapter ends with an angel of God killing Herod. The chapter begins with Herod's depravity. And then it ends with his demise. Now, there are many thoughts and definitions when we use the word depravity. 
Theologians like to refer to the total depravity of man, and there's a lot of different thoughts on that. Some refer to it as man being as bad as he can possibly be, but that's not true. You and I know people who don't even know the Lord who sometimes exhibit kind, loving, and uh, caring measures. So not every person is as bad as he can be and as bad even as other people might be. I like the words of Dwight Pentecost when he defined depravity in these very simple human terms. Depravity as man being as bad off as he can be. Notice we added the word off. It's not that man is just always being as bad as he can be, but being as bad off as he can be, because it's not man's estimation of man, but rather it's God's estimation of man. It has to do with our standing, not our conduct. And some unregenerate people conduct themselves better than others. But in God's sight, they are as bad off as they can be, just like a Herod, a Hitler, a Stalin. Why? Because they are totally lost, without God, dead in their sins, under condemnation, and destined for an eternity in hell without God and without hope. Any person who doesn't know Christ is on that route, the same one that Herod was on. King Herod flaunted his depravity through his arrogance and pride. Unless we go down the road, I could never be that evil. I could never do that. I remind you that you are as bad off as you can be if you don't know Christ as your personal Savior. Now, when you get down to the end of chapter 12, you go to verses 20 to 23, and you see Agrippa is basking in the praise of men from Tyre and Sidon. Tyre and Sidon are just north of Galilee. They're up in the country that we know as Syria. And they depended on Herod's breadbasket in Galilee uh, for food, just like the former Soviet Union used to depend on uh, Ukraine as their breadbasket. But Herod was angry at these cities and their food supply was in jeopardy. So they come trying to please Herod. Agrippa liked people bowing before him and begging before him. And he'll do what he needs to do to receive the glory and exhibit his power. So in verse 21 of Acts 12, it says, On an appointed day, Herod put on his royal robes, took his seat upon the throne, and he made an oration to them. In other words, he made every effort he could to let these folks from Tyre and Sidon see he was really Mr. Somebody. They weren't just coming to beg for food from a, uh, from a poor farmer. They were coming uh, to more of a person like God than a farmer. And surrounded by his pomp and circumstance, he plays it for all it's worth. Verse 22 says, And the people were shouting, The voice of a God and not of a man. And Herod in all his pride and arrogance loved the praise of men rather than seeking the honor from God. Then all of a sudden, we read in verse 23, immediately an angel of the Lord struck him down because he did not give God the glory and he was eaten by worms and breathed his last. What a demise. Depraved Herod is damned forever in hell. Now let's go back and pick it up again in, in chapter 12, where again that depra depravity of Herod continues to be displayed, this time in the death of James. Verse 2 of chapter 12 says, He killed James, the brother of John, 
with a sword. Now, there are several James in the New Testament, and this one is the brother of the Apostle John. They were known as the fiery sons of Zebedee. James was part of the inner circle of Jesus, along with Peter uh, and John. His death was the first apostle's martyrdom mentioned in Acts, and it was also the only martyrdom of an apostle mentioned in Acts. His execution by the sword would indicate that he was beheaded. By the way, that was familiar to him because he had an uncle. His name was Herod Antipas. Remember, he's the one that had John the Baptist beheaded. So it was a common way of striking fear into people and a form of execution. Well, he killed James, the brother of John, and it sets the stage for the dramatic prison rescue of Peter by an angel of God. Later on, Peter would write these words in 1 Peter 2.9, Then the Lord knows how to rescue the godly from trials. This is the sort of rescue that comes to mind. In the trial in prison, and God sends an angel, and he rescues you. But the night that James sat in prison, the angel didn't come. I'm sure he prayed for a miraculous deliverance, for an angel had already rescued him and the other apostles, as we see in chapter 5, especially verse 19, where all the apostles are thrown into prison for preaching the gospel. And it says, And during the night, an angel of the Lord opened the prison doors. And maybe, probably, James was thinking, the same is going to happen. But the angel didn't come. The angel didn't rescue him. And so just desperate prayers and intercession. No chains falling off. No sleeping guards. No bright light. In the morning, James was still in prison when the dreaded voice of the captain of the guards shouted, bring out the prisoner. There was a lot of anxiety-filled Prayerful walk to the place of execution, I am sure. No doubt the crime for which he was executed was read aloud. And you and I know his only crime was he was a follower of Christ. And then we see a raised sword. And James is absent from the body, present with the Lord. We have a chaplain who's also a Presbyterian pastor in Upper Egypt who is ministering to the families of loving Christians beheaded by ISIS a few years ago. You see a picture on the screen right before they were executed. Each one was given the opportunity to renounce the Lord Jesus Christ and embrace Islam, and if they would, they would be set free to go back to their families and their home. Not one of them renounced Christ. Like James, there was no deliverance. Or was there? Indeed, there was. There was the ultimate deliverance. Jesus, and get this down if you hear nothing else in these moments with you. Jesus allowed the sword to fall on James' neck as intentionally as he opened Peter's prison door. So the death of James is as crucial for us to remember as the rescue of Peter. Why did God let James die? Why does he let your loved ones die? My loved ones die. Why might we or people we love come down with COVID-19 and even die? 
This question is relevant because at some point most of us will find ourselves facing death, pleading for deliverance. The church will gather, they will pray for us, pray for healing, and that's all good and right to do. And then we don't receive what we think we are praying for. It points to a difficult lesson that all of Jesus' disciples must learn. For his priorities and plans sometimes are different than ours. Well, this pleased the Jews very much. And when Herod saw that, he decided now to go for the neck of the apostle Peter. And so we come to this third point under the persecution. It's the detention of Peter in verses 3 to 5. Let me read the verses for you. In verse 3 we read, And because he saw that it pleased the Jews, he proceeded further to seize Peter also. Verse 4, So when he had arrested him, he put him in prison and delivered him to four squads of soldiers to keep him, intending to bring him forth after the Passover. So Peter is guarded by uh, four squads of soldiers. No doubt those in authority remember the way that Peter and all the apostles had been rescued. How? By an angel of the Lord back in Acts chapter 5 verse 19 that I read earlier. Each squad now consisted of four soldiers. The text says two were actually chained to Peter and two were stationed outside the cell door. Talk about an impossible situation. But God is more powerful than prison bars. So Peter was kept in prison, verse 5, but earnest prayer for him was made to God by the church. Now, they obviously didn't have social media in those days, but you better believe it that when the apostle Peter is imprisoned, right after James has been beheaded, the news circulated fast to the church in Jerusalem. The church that started with 12 and then 120 and then 3,000 then added and then five. And there are now more than 5,000 men and plus women and children. So no doubt up around 10,000. You know when believers are threatened, we run to one another, don't we? And we pray. Now let's see how Dr. Luke describes God's answer to his praying people. We come to the second point, leaving the persecution and going to the power of God released. And we'll notice three things under here about Peter. First of all, in verse 6, we see Peter is resting. So listen to to verse 6, if you would, please. And when Herod was about to bring him out that night, Peter was sleeping, bound with two chains between two soldiers, and the guards before the door were keeping the prison. Now put yourself in Peter's sandals for just a moment. You know about James. He's been beheaded. You're in prison. And the same thing, fate awaits you as awaited James. And yet we find Peter sound asleep in his cell. How in the world can that be? How do you sleep soundly at night when you know you're going to be beheaded the next morning? I thought of two possible answers. One answer might be, preferred by me, because it wasn't that long ago that Jesus had to publicly restore Peter to his place of leadership because he had publicly denied the Lord three times. And so in John 21, he says, Simon, son of Judah, do you love me more than these? Do you love me, Peter? Do you love me, Peter? You Lord, you know I love you. You know I love you. You know I love you. Feed my lambs, feed my sheep, shepherd my flock. And then he says this, Peter, someday, You know, you're going to be an old man. Right now you're girding yourself and you're carrying yourself and you're walking wherever you want to go. But when thou shalt be old, 
You shall stretch forth your hands, and another will dress you and carry you where you don't want to go. Then he adds these words, And these spake he, signifying by what manner of death Peter would glorify the Lord. Those key words, I think, are when you are old. Peter at this time is probably around 25 years old. But he's remembering, Jesus said, you're going to be an old man someday. He knew he wasn't old. So maybe by faith he remembered that, he relied on it. He said, well, I'm going to be delivered because Jesus said, I'm not going to die until I'm an old man. So I might as well have a good night's sleep. Maybe that's why he was sound asleep. Or maybe it was simply that Peter was trusting the Lord and he had resigned to the fact that even if he was going to die, he might as well not waste a good night's sleep. After all, I might as well die rested instead of tired. At any rate, he's sleeping silently on a hard cell floor, shackled to two soldiers with a threat of imminent execution. And all of a sudden, there we go. Just like King Agrippa, all of a sudden, suddenly, he met his death. He was taken by an angel of God. Now here, there's another all of a sudden. Keep in mind that while Peter is sleeping, the church is praying and God is working. I like the New International Version, uh, version in verse 7 when it says, suddenly, because that's the way it often happens. You pray for something. A year after year, month after month, week after week, and you faint at times and you, you lose heart, but then you persevere. And then suddenly, just like that, God comes through and he answers your prayer. Look at verse 7. Isn't God practical? It says, a light shone in the prison. Why? So Peter could see what he was doing. So Peter finds the sandals, and then the angel says, Hey, Peter, put some clothes on. You can't go out in the streets in your underwear, and you surely can't go to a church prayer meeting in your underwear. So get some clothes on, Peter, and Peter obeys all this. He thinks he's seen a vision. He's still half asleep. He walks past the first and second guard post. And then we read in verse 10, listen to this verse. When they had passed the first and the second guard, they came to the iron gate leading into the city. It opened for them of its own accord, and they went out. Wait a minute. Of its own accord. Humans have their own accord. They have desire. They have decision. They have impulse. What's the, maybe it's a poor translation. What's the Greek word? Atomate, meaning auto, self, mate, desire, self-desire, self-will, self-accord, self-impose. So the gate opens of its in, impulse, but gates don't have impulses. Inanimate things don't have impulses. God opened the gate. Those obstacles that we face in our spiritual lives and ministry are mindless gates that swing on the hinges of God's will. The soldiers slept. The mindless gate opened. That's the way it works when God means to get something done. Peter's work was not done, so nothing could stop Peter. Not yet. James' ministry was finished. Peter's hour had not yet come. Here's the point. God has a good plan for every one of his children, but there are innumerable gates of iron that are in the way. The soldiers did not wake up. Peter's chains fell off. The gate opened. Mindless material obeys the sovereignty of God. 
And as you walk in the will of God, remember F.B. Meyer's words, the man walking in the will of God is invincible. Every gate will open of its own accord because the cord belongs to God. Let's trust him together. Don't look at the locked gate and despair. Look at the locked gate and say, excuse me, I have ministry to do. Look at the soldiers and say, sleep on and then move forward. You may think you're dreaming. You're not. Well, the angel left Peter. He realizes he's not dreaming. A miracle has transpired. So what does he do? He goes to the brothers and sisters where they're gathered. Why? Because nothing like adversity will drive us to the family. So let's close out the message and see that Peter, who having been rescued and resting and rescued, is now received by the brother in verses 12 to 19. Verse 12 says this, When he realized this, he went to the house of Mary, the mother of John, whose other name was Mark, where many were gathered together and were praying. Now, many is not the same as the 10,000 plus believers in Jerusalem. Probably anywhere from 25, maybe 50, depending on the size of the home of Mary. And it seems to be a very large home, indicating that she was a woman of means. And so, the 10,000 plus believers are broken up into the homes around Jerusalem. I think the whole church of Jerusalem was praying, but they were separated into small groups, isolated in a sense from one another. Families, house churches, just like we are today at Osterville Baptist Church. We can't go to the building on Main Street, but the building is not the church. You're the church, I'm the church. And we pray together, even in a small family group. And they're grieving the loss of James, but now they're thinking, oh my goodness, we can't lose Peter too. And these small groups praying all over Jerusalem exploded the doors of the hinges off of Herod's prison. God in his great sovereignty has chosen to respond to the prayers of his people. And one well-known Bible teacher once said, that God seldom acts in the affairs of men apart from the intercessory prayers of his children. By the way, the same word used for their praying is the same word that used of our Lord's prayer in Gethsemane, meaning a very fervent prayer life. Now let's pick it up in verses 13 to 17, and we'll move quickly through this uh, text together. Uh, beginning at verse Verse 13, or verse 12, so when he considered this, he went to the house of Mary. Verse 13, and as Peter knocked at the door of the gate. Now, this is the one, one of the most humorous portions of Scripture. As Peter knocked at the door of the gate, a girl named Rhoda came to answer. When she recognized Peter's voice because of her gladness, she did not open the gate, but she ran in and announced that Peter stood before the gate. But they said to her, you're beside yourself. Yet she kept insisting, it's Peter, it's Peter, it's Peter. So they said, ah, okay, it's his angel. Now Peter continued knocking, and when they opened the door and saw him, they were astonished, but motioning to them with his hand to keep silent, he declared to them how the Lord had brought him out of the prison. And he said, go tell these things to James and to the brethren. And he departed and went to another place. What a powerful portion of scripture. There we see him just like a bunch of sheep. Bless their hearts. They're praying fervently. And God answers the prayer. And when he answers the prayer, they can't believe it. Peter knocks on the door. And the little girl, Rhoda, was so excited. She's standing there just like a picture your little daughter or your granddaughter. And she's picturing her at the door and she's looking up. And she sees 
the leader, the, the apostle Peter. And then all of a sudden she leaves him. She doesn't even invite him in. She just leaves him. She's so excited. She's going back to the prayer meeting. And now she goes into this room where they're about praying. I don't know if they're prostate. I don't know if they're on their knees or how they're doing it. But she's breaking in. And I see the Apostle John over there, and he's saying something like, Oh, uh, Father God, thou who inhabits the heavens and the earth, nothing is too hard for you. And then she's tapping him on the shoulder and saying, Your prayer's answered. Peter's at the door. And then the mother comes up, maybe Mary or some other woman says, Shh, be quiet, little girl. The men are praying. And then you look over, and there's John. He's still going on praying about God and what he can do, and nothing too hard for him. Then Rhoda so persistent. He's here. I saw him. He's at the door. And what did he say? Rhoda, you must be mad. You're beside yourself. Literally, that's the word that means you're insane. It's the same word that was used of Jesus when they accused him of having a demon. It's the same word Festus used to describe Paul the apostle when he said, much learning doth make thee mad. But Rhoda kept on insisting that it was Peter, verse 15, and finally they said, what? Must be his angel. Now, why did they say that? Well, they believed that each believer had a guardian angel, Matthew 18, 10, who could assume the form of that person. The Jews at that day also believed that one's angel often appeared immediately after the person's death. And perhaps they thought Peter had been executed, and now Peter's an angel had appeared. You know, people get a lot of weird thoughts that aren't based on Scripture. It drives me crazy when I hear another believer say about a, another believer who dies and said, he got his angel's wings. Where in the world did you get that? You're not an angel. You've never been an angel, and you're never going to be an angel. You're a sinner saved by grace, and you're going to have a body someday like the Lord Jesus Christ. Some of those things are just so unbiblical and wrong. And anyway, Peter's outside. Still, he's still knocking on the door, trying to get in. And finally, they come to the door. They're amazed to see that their prayers had been answered. Peter had to motion them to shh, shh, keep silent. You're going to wake up the neighbors, and Peter's life will be in jeopardy again. So in verse 17, Peter described to them how the Lord had brought him out of prison. And he said, tell these things to James. That's another James. That's James, the leader of the church in Jerusalem. Then he did that, the half-brother of the Lord Jesus, by the way, converted now. Then he departed and he went to another place. Now there's a principle here. When God answers our prayers and moves in a supernatural manner, we're to tell others that they might be encouraged. I received encouragement this week from some of you that we've been praying for certain things. And then God suddenly, just like it is, he broke through and he answered and how we rejoice together. Well, I love the way Luke ends the chapter with the words in verse 24. And the word of God increased and multiplied. This one is one of three times in Acts where we see the phrase, the word of God grew, or another translation, the word of God increased. In chapter 6 verse 7, it grew because deacons were appointed. But in chapter 19 verse 20, it grew as the result of the right in Ephesus. But here, the emphasis in this verse is that it grew in spite of what has happened. The word of God increased. How glorious to know that God's purposes cannot be frustrated by mankind. 
God's purposes aren't uh, uh, delayed because of pestilences or disease or COVID-19. God is working out his plan. He's behind the scene. He's pulling everything together for his glory. How glorious to know his purposes will never be frustrated by mankind. He's building his church and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. More powerful than prison bars was true 2,000 years ago, and it's true today, and we have that same power available today, knowing that Jesus Christ is the same today, yesterday, today, and forever. Now, one of the things on my heart during these troublesome times is that God would give us a growing faith instead of a paralyzing fear. Not only that, but that we would be bold in our proclamation in our witness for the Lord Jesus Christ, that others might see the peace of Christ in us while others are fearful, and that his word might increase all around the world. Dietrich Bonhoeffer wrote in letters and prison, papers from prison these wonderful words. The church is the church only when it exists for others, not dominating, but helping and serving. It must tell men of every calling what it means to live for Christ, to live for others. And that's what God wants you. Don't focus on yourself. Don't focus on COVID-19. Focus on God and then around and how God can use you to serve them. Three applications. Number one, let's focus on God, not the situation around us. Number two, let's love and pray for one another and walk by faith, trust in God. Number three, let's proclaim the gospel of Christ through unique ways while practicing social distancing. A couple months ago, I was in Latvia, and one day I was up in Valmira's prison near the Estonian border. Thank you, Osterville Baptist Church, for your partnership with Good News Jail and Prison Ministry, not only in the Middle East through Bachara Karkafi, but also in Latvia. It was good to be with my friend of 20-plus years, Nicholas Vadov. Nicholas's grandfather was an itinerant evangelist in Ukraine during Soviet Union days, and he was put into prison because of his faith for about three years from 1930 to 33. He had eight children, and the family moved to Latvia in 1982. Now his grandson, Nikolai, is also in prison, but not because of his faith that he's been in prison, but to proclaim his faith to the needy people behind prison bars. Nikolai introduced me to an inmate by the name of Edwin. Edwin is a gypsy, the most despised and the largest minority in Egypt. He's 54 years. He's been in and out of prison for 40 years. He's now serving a 17-year prison a sentence. But as you will hear, Edwin, though behind prison bars, get this, is a free man while millions of people not incarcerated in a correctional facility, but moving around earth, are imprisoned by their own sin, lust, and guilt. You can be set free only through the finished work of Christ and putting your faith and trust in him. I invite you to do that as you sit right there in your home. As a child or teenager, if you're not sure, to ask your mom or dad about it. And I invite you to trust Christ the best way you know how. Now we're going to go and I'm closing the message with a three and a half minute video. Uh, it's of Nikolai, our chaplain, and Edwin. And this will give you a little bit of sense of the dividends of your investment in the work of the Lord in Latvia. God bless you. And now let's go to the video and meet Nicholas uh, and Edwin, the inmate. Thank you.